Welcome back to Forgotten Lakers. We're here tonight with uh, Peter Cornell. Peter was a member of the 2001-2002 Lakers roster during training camp in the preseason. How are you doing tonight? Doing well, Jeff. Yourself? I'm doing all right. Can't complain. Like I said, when we were getting this set up, this is a podcast to talk to former Lakers that people may not necessarily remember for their Lakers stint, just to talk to them about their history with basketball, uh, their time in L.A., and what they're doing now. Sure. No, I think it's fantastic. Uh, as I was saying, uh, quite an accomplished list of guys that no one really remembered being on the Lakers, and I'm uh, glad to be recognized as one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy I could do that for you. Uh, <laughs> one of the first questions I'd like to ask is, how did you get started with basketball? Like, What made you fall in love with the game? Um, when did you realize you were significantly better than your friends, your teammates, and that you probably had a future in it? Uh, good question. I would say basketball became the sport of choice after I grew about seven inches my junior year in high school, <laughs> and uh, I somewhat didn't have any other choice. I wasn't allowed to play football, which was obviously a wise decision by my parents, my mm -hmm. mom namely, and um, I just could not get a good handle on my curveball on the, on the mound there for a baseball player. It's hitting far too many batters, although I did have some nice trajectory. I, uh, I honed in on basketball, and uh, I was always very athletic, and I ran track in high school as well as playing baseball, and it just kind of all came together to, to be the best sport for me to pursue, and then some college coaches came sniffing around small schools and kept growing and kind of put on some weight and became a formidable player and knew that it was going to be time for me to play some basketball in college, and eventually that turned into me playing some basketball as a pro. Yeah, just looking, doing some research for this, saw you went to Loyola Marymount. Very small world. I went to Loyola, New Orleans for okay. college. Yeah, only a handful of the Loyolas out there. Well, we have Chicago, Maryland, New Orleans, and L.A., right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, how'd you get settled on uh, Loyola Marymount as your school of choice? I, uh, I actually was recruited, uh, just like I said, by some small schools coming out of high school. You know, I was six foot nine, about a buck ninety, and <laughs> uh, looked, uh, looked like I wasn't going to be ready to play Division One basketball. And they had just that year or the year before shaved down Division One scholarships. I want to say from like 15 to 13 or something mm -hmm. like that, where they just didn't have that kind of uh, sign and stash ability that they had had in years before. So a lot of schools, a few WCC schools, um, a couple maybe Big West, Big Sky, had suggested I come as a walk-on, but I ended up getting a scholarship offer from a small school in the NAIA up in uh, Tacoma, Washington, called University of Puget Sound. Okay. So I ended up going up there. It was a you know very uh, very good school, and that was important to me. I certainly didn't think I was going to continue uh, to grow and get more and more dominant as a as a player. So I just kind of took the best education that was on the table uh, with the opportunity to not pay for it. So yeah. <laughs> uh, my mom was elated with that. And uh, for sure. see why. So I went there and, you know, again, 6'9", 190. At the end of my freshman year, I was 6'10", 230. So I had the fresh uh -huh. 40. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. And I, I, it, it quickly turned into me basically being King Kong out there. And um, they fortunately had decided to transition from an NAIA school to a Division three school. And mm -hmm. I remember calling my mom and telling her, like, hey, you know, I'm going to be the last scholarship player they have there. 
They brought in a couple guys that they're looking to, you know, bring on as basketball players for next year who are in essence going to be walk-ons and you probably could beat them in one-on-one. And she was not thrilled whatsoever to think about the prospect of me leaving a great education that was fully, you know, taken care of to try to go do something that we were looking at a year earlier. But I said, you know, I'm a different player now and I think I have a shot. So mm-hmm. came back for Easter that, summer, that, uh, that spring, talked to a few of the Division I schools that I had spoken to in high school, Pepperdine and San Diego, I believe, and they both suggested that I go down to the double pump discovery camp. I forget what carnation it was for them. They have so many different camps. I don't know if you're familiar with the Pump Brothers. No, I'm not. I'm not yeah. at all, actually. Dana and David Pump, uh, they're twins, and they're basically fixtures in the Southern California basketball scene. There's not one player uh, in the NBA that has come from Southern California that's not familiar with them. And mm-hmm. uh, they are just you know, in bed with uh, a lot of great programs, a lot of AAU programs, and they just get a lot of momentum going for kids and uh, different colleges. And they've just done a, a wonderful job of, of growing the game out of Southern California. So I went down to that uh, discovery camp and um, you know, I was the only 6'10", 230-pound player with the junior <laughs> college kids that was you know, running up and down the court and dunking. And mm-hmm. felt like every time I was going up and down the court, I would look and see my mom who had no one around her to start. And this was down in Carson, uh, yeah. in California. Uh, every transition, I would go back. There seemed to be another person sitting next to my mom. And uh, Robert Burke, uh, the assistant coach at Loyola Marymount, uh, was quick to get us over to LMU and saw the campus and loved it. And then Charlie Parker over at USC, several other coaches, Dave Bliss um, out of uh, New Mexico, a bunch of big programs. They were all hot to try. And then it turned out the NCAA wasn't necessarily – keen on having division one coaches recruiting top division uh, i guess naia players that was what it was because no one had gone from naia to division one mm-hmm. so loyola seemed to be the only one that was going to take me one way or another them and gonzaga i suppose uh, i might have taken the wrong road in the basketball world on that oh, but yeah. um i just could not manage to stay in the pacific northwest so it was back uh, to LMU for me in, the, in that summer, and um, I ended up being ineligible to play that year, which was uh, interesting. They kind of wanted to make an example of me, I suppose, and so I had to sit out. Uh, so I had redshirted at Puget Sound, and then I had to uh-huh. sit out a second year at Loyola, and then um, ended up playing two more years uh, there before leaving uh, with my degree, but a year on the table of eligibility because of coaching changes. It just wasn't conducive for me to grow and a lot of people just felt better it'd be better for me to get out and and play professionally so that's what I did so I do follow professional basketball very closely not so much college did y'all have good success at LMU like any long tournament runs or make the tournament at all I mean, I always joke I feel like we we were almost not invited to our own conference tournament okay (laughs) Uh, you know after Hank Gathers who I'm sure you're aware of rest in peace um, died there on our home court at Gerson Pavilion. I feel mm-hmm. like Loyola was never truly ready to embrace another big time program. And mm-hmm. with that, we saw, you know, just some very bizarre choices for coaches to come in there. They had no shortage of high caliber coaches that wanted to come in there and bring the school back to its potential. You know, you're in the middle of Los Angeles, gorgeous campus. You, know, you think you should be a top contender, at least in the conference, let alone on the West Coast. 
and they just never really did it. They turned away a lot of big coaches and brought in a lot of no-name coaches that kind of ran the program into the ground. I believe the year after I left, they were the second to worst team in college basketball ahead of Grambling State. And oh, I, no. the reason that they weren't last is because they managed to beat like two NCAA Division three teams and Grambling had not beat anyone. And mm-hmm. I think the margin of loss, like average margin of loss was 22 points a night. And so that was a season that I fortunately missed. <laughs> um, but we did not have much success, you know, two coaches and they, we just really couldn't, really couldn't get it together. We made a run and beat the number one ranked Santa Clara in our conference my uh, so, or I guess my sophomore year. And then mm-hmm. my junior year, we uh, got knocked out in, uh, at the buzzer in overtime by Gonzaga. And um, that was it for me at Loyola. And like I said, it was uh, time for, I ended up declaring for the draft. Not because I thought I was that guy, but just I just wasn't going to stay and play for that coach there who he and I had uh, very different uh, opinions on how we needed to work together. So mm. I guess that was, would have been the 98 draft? Yep, 98 draft, which was a tough draft because, uh, you know, coming out of a small school with no exposure, if, yeah. uh, you know, you're not kind of on the grid, so to speak, for these guys, they're not going to take a flyer on you. And I had a bunch of workouts, and uh, Seattle was uh, possibly going to take me with one of their two picks in the second round where they took uh, Richard Lewis and Jelani McCoy. Oh, yeah. And, um, I, uh, so I ended up not getting drafted that year and then shortly thereafter the NBA went into a lockout so I found myself heading uh, to the Connecticut pride of the CBA where I was drafted just Mm -hmm. to be in a training camp with about 10 like NBA players who were all borderline guys that were just staying in shape getting ready for the league to open up so couldn't even stick there because they were all trying to capitalize on having some big names in there and ended up in a little league called the IBA uh, in Minot North Dakota where I cashed my first check as a professional basketball player for $189 (laughs) a week after taxes because the rookie salary was $250 a week. You know, the union salary apparently was $250 (laughs) a week on a minimum uh, (laughs) living in a soon-to-be-demolished wing of the, I believe it was the Ramada right by the airport. And I think (laughs) think the airport was taking it over for eminent domain. I mean, it was was quite a season. in the pros for my first year. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it just, you, you look back and you think all those, those decisions you could have made and where you could have went, should have went to Gonzaga or should have went to SC and this and that, it all kind of comes together with its own reason and makes you who you are. And I look back and don't really regret a thing about the progression into the pros. Yeah, my <laughs> college education was great. Uh, Loyola was a fantastic place to develop as a, a young man and to, um, you know, be educated with the Jesuit education, as you know. So, oh, definitely, yeah. I went to a Jesuit high school, and then um, getting to go to Loyola for college was, you know, a great choice. Actually, my freshman year in New Orleans was Hurricane Katrina. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we were. I was there one day, like literally one day, and we had to evacuate. Oh uh, my! Wow, yeah. that's something else. Did you were you staying local, or did you end up uh, heading back home for a while? No, I had I uh, so I'm originally from Dallas and okay. went to University of Dallas that first semester after Hurricane Katrina, and then went back that spring to New Orleans. Wow, wow, that's that was a, must have been very eye opening to see uh, yeah. when you came back. Wow, oh definitely, yeah. We uh, one of my high school friends who went down there with me. We went on a 
like Hurricane Katrina destruction tour and just got to see a lot. And then for community service that year, we were still gutting houses that had been completely destroyed. Wow. Very yeah. rewarding work, though. At least you can be a part of something like that on the upswing. Yeah, for sure. So I'm doing some research on your career. We were talking about the $180 paychecks. Was that for the uh, Magic City Snow Bears? That was. That was. <laughs> I love some of these team names you get. Uh, it's unbelievable, man. I mean, the, the, so, so many dogs in the minor leagues, right? Yeah. Dogs everywhere. And then in Pennsylvania, it was the DAWGS, the Valley Dogs. We were coached by Daryl Dawkins, rest in peace. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, out there in the Lehigh Valley in a, in a mm-hmm. passenger van going into Brooklyn and playing at the old Apollo. I mean, the alphabet soup of the minor leagues, I tell you. You know, in my career, I played, I think, in 12 years, I played for over 30 different teams in 15 <laughs> different leagues in seven different countries. Wow, that's quite an experience. It was quite an experience. And I think I hold, uh, I hold the record. Someone told me this with the NBA. I hold the record for the, the player to have signed, I think, more than four NBA contracts and not to appear in a regular season game in the NBA. Oh. <laughs> quite a distinguishment. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and it was, by the way, it was six times for me. So I think the previous record had been three or four, and I, I beat that. But yeah, I, I ended up going to camp for um, six years in a row and ended up being the last cut four, five times out of the six. Even was a holdover, you know, where like in Orlando, they had me wait for a week while they're trying to deal Andrew DeClerc and uh-huh. me around. But it was very interesting because getting into the NBA and, you know, spending time in these training camps and, you know, you're working as hard as you can. You know, it's not like they're fielding a new team every year. And a lot of people don't really understand that. You got a lot of big contracts that are sitting at the end of the bench. And the last thing they want to do is, A, pay one of those guys to leave and B, put a young guy there that's going to be having them, you know, close it up even more, you know, or shut it down even more uh, because you're a hungry guy out there diving on the floor, playing good minutes, and you get some guy that they're just desperate to get some productivity out of. They've signed to a multi-year deal or whatever the case is. And every every year I was with a team, my salary would go up, which was pretty ironic. Mm -hmm. You know, you're becoming more of an expensive piece of the puzzle, and that's not what you want to be. And then you add in the the luxury tax and you start getting very expensive and that that seemed to really hinder the ability for guys like me and my other friends to kind of stick places when it came down to making decisions on the roster because we just be, we came, became very expensive mm-hmm. uh, to, to stick around. I remember Dr. Jerry Buss, rest in peace uh, as well. Uh, I, I talked to him. Uh, it's, I saw him in Hawaii when we had training camp there with the Lakers and I told him, he said, you know, I love what you're doing out there. You're really playing, you know, your heart out. And I said, hey, you know, it's my dream to be here. You know, I went to Loyola. Obviously, we practiced with you guys because we shared the practice court at Loyola with the Lakers until they had their Health South facility, which is oh, now, wow. I think, Honda Center or Health South. I don't know what it is now. But uh, I told Dr. Buss, I said, listen, I mean, between you and me, if I make the roster, I would happily donate my entire salary to a charity of your choice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he told me, he's like I, like, I like where your head's at. He's like, I can only imagine the fallout if that ended up getting out. But uh, you just keep working hard. Good things are going to happen to you. And uh, he was a great guy. You know, after I ended up getting a wave from the team and went over to Europe, and I came back, I saw him out at a nightclub of all places. He was uh-huh. This was in Europe? 
No, this was here in LA when I got oh, okay. back from LA. He uh, was surrounded by girls, and a girl came over and, and got brought me over to him. I didn't want to like interrupt his 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 night. He was kind of tucked away in this club, great not Greystone Manor. What is it? The Gate, someplace over in West Hollywood. And he called me over. He said, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I just got back from Europe." He's like, "You, you should be playing somewhere." I'm like, well, "I I hear you, you know, like yeah. trying to see what's going on." He's like, "Let me make some calls for you and see what I can do." And uh, gave me his card. And sure enough, I got a call from uh, Chris Alpert from the NBA D League the next day or two saying he heard from Dr. Buss and he wanted to get, reach out to me and, and bring me into their new league and have me play. And uh, really, really respected Dr. Buss. I mean, come on, this guy's the owner of an NBA team. He's, you know, sitting down and rolling calls for me, trying to get me into the D League and get me going somewhere. I really respected that. And that just kind of was what the Lakers were. Uh, from top to bottom was was a class act, and and uh, we'll never forget that with Dr. Buss. Yeah, that's cool. You know, that's probably the first story of all the guys I've talked to where they've had, um, you know, an interaction like that with Dr. Buss that they've shared. So that was really yeah. neat to hear. Yeah, no, he's a great guy. Really, really good guy. So what was your experience like in that training camp with the Lakers? Like you walk in and your coach is Phil Jackson and you have some superstar teammates and some other guys who have been around the league for a while and was that your first NBA training camp? That was my third. I had been with the Nets the two years prior. And okay. um, I had come into summer league with them and had a really strong summer league. And they were very interested in making me uh, part of their organization and team and, and um, signed me very early in the offseason and their, and their free agency. So, so early where somehow a lot of basketball people in L.A. thought I was a lot uh, – more of a substantial player than I was or ended up being with them. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, almost right when free agency started. And, you know, usually the big names are getting snatched up. And a lot of the time you're kind of waiting to see if you can filter into a training camp. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they signed me, you know, probably a, a week into it. And then, of course, local media outlets pick it up and, you know, sign former Loyola Marymount Center, Peter Cornell, you know, out of the ABA. And, it just somehow became a bigger deal than it really was. And no one knows it's, you know, terms of the deal were undisclosed. I mean, little they know it was, I was going to be making what, $1,500 a week until I made the opening night roster. But, yeah. uh, but it was, it was quite an experience. They had just won a championship and, you know, I was kind of instantly embraced by the city and I was, had been gutting it out in the minor leagues, you know, up until then. And, uh, and the ABA playing for, the Memphis Hound Dogs um, and the San Diego Wildfire, and that yeah, <laughs> I see both those two names here as well. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think both teams still owe me some money. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think most every team I played with in the minor league owes me some money. But um, yeah, you know, we we had a pretty good year. Uh, end of the season in Memphis, I played well there, had some momentum, played well in the, uh, the summer, and then there I was training with the Lakers in the off season and. You know, I knew a lot of the guys from Loyola, like I said, you know, when uh, I went to Loyola in 95, the Lakers were there every day. So when we were mm -hmm. coming off the court, they would be coming on or vice versa. So I, I got close and that's when Shaq and I became friends when he got, um, you know, he got signed and they brought him in and, you know, Kobe mm -hmm. was there as well. So I knew a lot of the guys, knew a lot of the uh, front office, you know, I knew Mitch, Kupchak and everyone. So it was kind of like being where... You know, I had been, but then obviously I was a member of the team, which was great. And the the strength and conditioning guys got me on just an incredible program that summer. I really was able to optimize my uh, my body and was able to develop as a as a player nicely. And there we are going to Hawaii 
after a great off season. And, uh, you know, they were in Hawaii for three weeks playing a couple of preseason games against uh, the Warriors. Mm-hmm. And um, Phil Jackson was obviously, you know, an, an icon, you know, in, yep. in the game. And, and here he is kind of walking by me at practice and whispering like these interesting little tips into my ear. Like, I want you to hold an egg for an entire day the next day off we have. I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> oh, okay. Did uh, you? <laughs> uh, no, I did not. Okay. And I, now I'm just thinking like I probably should have. But, yeah. uh, he, but then I remember another day he was like, I want you to do everything that you do with your right hand today with your left. Opening doors, drinking water, eating your food. I was like, all right. I actually did do that and I read about that. Apparently it kind of opens up some pathways and kind of enables your brain to kind of be more optimized, I guess. So that was an interesting little strategy, but uh, very interesting guy. I mean, to say the least, as you've heard from, I'm sure most of the guys you've talked to that had a chance to spend time with him, but mm-hmm. overall it was great. You know, Shaq had been hurt. He had, he had got that toe surgery. So he was not with us in the beginning of camp, but then he kind of pulled it together and uh, all 365 pounds of him came yeah. into practice. It was just unbelievable how big he got. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it was, it was great, you know, uh, working with all those guys and you know, Kobe and you know, just starting to kind of hit his stride and um, just really an exciting time. And at the end of the day, you know, right before camp started, Jelani McCoy ended up not coming to terms with, I forget where he was going to go, but he ended up coming in mm-hmm. and they gave him a partial guarantee. And it's, you know, at the end of the end of the day, at the end of every NBA bench, there's about three or four guys that are completely and totally interchangeable. I mean, it just, it doesn't really matter. They're just kind of space eaters and guys that you have in there that are working hard, kind of like the walk-on deal in college where you have sure. these guys that are just keeping the team up and doing all the little things to make the guys that are not really into it, you know, realize they need to be into it. So uh, July McCoy comes in and that kind of was, was all she wrote for me. They didn't want to keep a lot of dead weight uh, at the end of the bench. They ended up keeping 13 guys. Um, mm-hmm. Paul Shirley being one of the cuts there. Um, you know, a few other guys. I can't remember who else is there. Crispin. Crispin. Did Crispin make opening day? He right? did. I, he was one of the guys I talked to. He was yeah. like the third guy I talked to. Um, he played six games, then he got cut early. That's right. That's right. Um, Penberthy had been, Mike Penberthy had been on the team the entire season the year before. Mm-hmm. And then the season you were in training camp, uh, he was an early cut as well. Maybe played, you know, three, four games before he got cut. Yeah, well, he, he was somewhat resting on his laurels. I mean, he won a championship, and he came back in uh, not in the best shape. I remember even Shaq was giving him a hard time, which was pretty ironic. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and Crispin was just such a little beast. He was yeah. in tip-top shape. He's like little Captain America out there and uh-huh. just, just giving it to him every single day. And, Mike, it was just too much for him to – to catch up to Joe. He just, he just couldn't. And that eventually, you know, wrote him out of the, of the roster. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was there until near the end of that month and then ended up getting uh, waived. And I was on a plane to uh, the former Yugoslavia at the time it was Serbia um, to play for Vladi Divac's team, Partizan. And um, uh-huh. I'm actually half Serbian. So I, I had seen, Vlade in Las Vegas when we were playing against the Kings uh, in the preseason with the Lakers. And he kind of pulled mm-hmm. me aside afterwards. He's like, listen, he's like, if things don't work out for you, 
I'd be really interested in having you come over and playing for my team in Europe. Wow. And Partizan is a EuroLeague team, so it's you know kind of like the NBA of sorts of the uh, of the European, you know, the Europe uh, league. Mm-hmm. And um, so off I went to uh, to Belgrade to play there for my uh, for my next stop on my many stops. Yeah. <laughs> Love my many stops. So when you're about you know maybe a month or so with the Lakers, could you sense the friction between Kobe and Shaq? Was it like a daily thing, or uh, how did that um, work? A little bit. It, it, it's two alphas, and it's just you know, there wasn't enough room for both of them. There wasn't enough coverage for both of them. wasn't enough balls for both of them. And uh, mm-hmm. there definitely was. And there was always oh, there was always a little back and forth going on. It was like somewhat of a mutual respect, but you could tell that they both wanted to be the man and didn't want anyone else around them. But it was a catch twenty two because they needed the, they needed one another. And mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day, it's unfortunate they couldn't have kind of come together and, and cooler heads prevail because they could have certainly won some more championships together. But yeah, I certainly, you could certainly uh, sense it to a degree. It wasn't, uh, it hadn't gotten as bad. I mean, they just come on when it, their first championship going mm-hmm. into their second season, they won two more. So I think it got bad when, uh, you know, after that three peak and then things, things kind of didn't end up going so well for the team and they started bickering and you know, pointing fingers. And that's when everything kind of fell apart, I think. Yeah. So for, you know, maybe the dozen people who actually are listening to this podcast right now, <laughs> they might know you from such films like semi-pro uh, like yeah. Mike bedazzle. <laughs> um, so how did you get into the film industry? And uh, it seems like you play a lot of basketball roles in those. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, you know, fortunately when I was playing in a, in a kind of a summer league game called the real run uh, out of Los Angeles in 99, I had had some buddies that were talking to me about getting, doing some commercials and I, I really didn't even understand it. I was just trying to get in the gym, work on my game, and, you know, get a, a gig playing basketball. These guys were talking about commercials. I thought they were a little silly. So I passed on a few opportunities to do stuff my rookie summer, the summer of, of 98. And then in 99, I got pulled out of the gym by a, a guy named Nigel Miguel, former UCLA standout, played um, with the New Jersey Nets and ended up rupturing his Achilles, unfortunately. And when he injured himself and he went back to LA where he's from, he was the same class as, and as a McDonald's All-American with Michael Jordan. So they were very close. And they ended up working together um, extensively on a lot of Michael Jordan's, you know, branding and his basketball commercials, uh, particularly. So Nigel knew all these guys, and Michael Jordan's kind of, you know, changing the whole landscape of marketing for basketball players and Nike and all that. So Nigel was kind of pulling in these guys who were, you know, pros, maybe overseas or in between gigs, and could use the money of doing these commercials. So, you know, because you had actors that might look like ball players but can't play ball, and you got ball players in the NBA that are not trying to do commercials and, and get dunked on or whatever the case was. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he goes, we get the best one there. So he pulled me out of this game and uh, said, man, we're going to get you into some commercials and took a couple Polaroids of me just to date myself. And um, <laughs> within a week or two, I got a call uh, about going to some fitting in Long Beach, and I went down to the Long Beach Convention Center and uh, it's a huge production all around, a big base camp and these trailers and all that. And they had converted the whole Long Beach Convention Center inside to be the Lakers floor, home floor. And I go into wardrobe, they're steaming out number eight Bryant jerseys. And I was like, wow, wow. here I am, 20, I guess, three years old. And uh, next thing I know, I'm shooting a Sprite commercial um, with Kobe Bryant 
um, where Kobe's dunking on uh, one of the my teammates on the Washington Wizards for the commercial. Oh, and I remember telling my mom, I was like, oh, mom, I'm doing this commercial. She's like, yeah, you're a commercial. What are you, an overgrown Leonardo DiCaprio? What, what do you think you're doing? I'm like, I don't know, mom. You know, that's kind of cool. It's a day. You know, she's like, you need to work on your jump shot. I'm like, all right. Well, she was right on that. But uh, <laughs> I ended up getting, you know, the checks started coming. And here I am. Gosh, I don't even know where I went that year. I was bouncing around in the minors. My mom's calling me every week or two weeks. Pete, you have a check here for $2,300. Pete, you have a check here for $3,400. I cannot believe this, Pete. Hooray for Hollywood. And so I ended up making you know, a ton of money on this one commercial. Wow. Came back into LA that, that spring, summer and shot a handful more and you know, just, just kept on going. And if it wasn't for basketball commercials, I wouldn't have been able to really give it a legitimate shot of trying to stick in the NBA or get back to the NBA in any capacity because the minor leagues are just, it's just too tough. And fortunately for these guys now, they've kind of opened it up and they have these two-way contracts and the NBA is realizing they're losing too many guys to the overseas leagues and they want to keep guys around. And I, I think they're doing a great job by incentivizing them to stay. But for mm -hmm. us back then, you know, you had a bunch of different leagues and, you know, making no money. And for me, it was huge. You know, I was able to make six figures, you know, year after year doing commercials, which took three, four days of my summer and mm -hmm. um, was very fortunate to do that. And I've continued to do that and will continue to do it until uh, they don't want me to do it. I just shot a big one. I don't know if you saw the recent one, the LeBron James one uh, called Want It All with the young kid um, who ends up being LeBron so. James' teammate. They ran it heavily in the beginning yeah. of the season. Uh, uh, so you're in that? Yeah. I was. If you, if you blink, you'll miss me. And you can see me more in the two-minute version. But at the end, after the alley-oop that LeBron throws uh, the young kid in the commercial, I'm one of the Cavaliers jumping around excited. And, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so, you know, it's, I've done, gosh, I think I've probably done 70 or 80 commercials in the last nearly 20 years now. I read you did uh, three Super Bowl commercials. Yep, did three Super Bowl commercials. Uh, yeah, I did a wow. Bud Light spot in 07. Um, I did a, a Chevy one in, like, probably 04, 05. And then uh, I forget what the third one was. Good question. But, yeah, you know, it, it just it's a fantastic niche. And, again, you know, for the guys that can play and don't mind making – you know, some money that residually pays you out after your day of, uh, of work. It's a great gig. And there's a small community of us that do it. And I've been very fortunate to uh, be a part of that. Cause again, in the minor leagues, it's, you know, it's draft or shaft in general in the NBA. Yeah. Um, you're either in there or you're not, you know, and I think I heard the statistic that maybe four guys who are undrafted every year will make an NBA roster from the start of the season to the end of the season. So you have, what, 450 players, and you're, want, you're trying to be one of four guys. That could be a point guard coming from Europe. It could be a big guy, you know, who's coming out of some college program that was undrafted. It's just you don't know where you're going to fit in, and, and the right time and place is everything. So it really helped balance that out, kept me going in those you know, six, six tries into sticking in with the NBA. Mm -hmm. So then another thing for you, I saw that you were – I don't know. It sounded like this may have been something in the past. I'm not sure if it happened that you were going to be playing George Mikan in a movie called Sweetwater. Yeah, that's funny. Wow. It's amazing. All these things, the internet uh, kicks out, right? Yeah. yeah. I, uh, there was a movie they were doing years ago. I still don't think they've even got that movie shot. You know, it's one of those projects that just never came together. They were going to do a movie based on um, Nat. I think it's Nat Sweetwater Clifton. Uh, okay. 
if that's the name. I don't yeah, know. that name sounds really familiar. Yeah, um, one of the first African Americans to play in the NBA, and you know, I, I guess he was like the one that no one really knew. It was mm-hmm. kind of a great story, and uh, George Mikan was an integral kind of player that year in that league, in the league as it was, and was for many years. But he was a big character, so I um, I was going to be cast to be him. But we ended up just continually getting told that next year, next year, next year, and I just don't think it you know, came together. Ah, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, there's, yeah, there's just so many projects in Hollywood that, you know, just don't really get off the ground unless they're really big-time productions like Semi-Pro, for instance, which was, sure. you, know, a, you know, a big production, you know, with Will and Woody and Andre mm-hmm. and all those guys, and you got, you know, uh, New Line Cinema's mind. It's a whole lot different than a guy yeah, about so. five million to shoot like a basketball version of Get Out, you know, and see if yeah. they can cash in on it. So <laughs> <laughs> that would have been interesting, just because he's such a Laker legend. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. I mean, yeah, I would have probably had to get a little bit of a flat top and throw on the goggles, but uh, yeah. certainly have the build and certainly had done my mic and drills in my career. You know, the little yeah. left and right little layups. You yeah, right under the basket. Yeah, exactly. The good old mic and drill. So yeah, that would have been cool. And uh, obviously a big time Laker legend. It's funny because I just remembered uh, John Black, who was the former uh, PR guy for the Lakers. He recently left the team. Yeah, they let him go, yeah. Yeah, let him go. They did a big kind of you know, overhaul of that down there. Uh, I remember in Hawaii, I was, was going to be able to start uh, in the preseason game. And I was lacing up my shoes, and I heard someone kind of come up into my ear and said, George Mikan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Wilt Chamberlain, Peter Cornell, which one doesn't belong? Yeah, <laughs> I was like, Jesus! I don't know if I needed to hear all that. Like, I yeah. mean, like you could have just cut out that. Yeah, it was John Black. You know, yeah. I was like, all right, well, I mean, I'll, I'll take it. But I suppose it's it's something to say. Started a game for the Lakers in the preseason, albeit. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, some some great centers have come through that program. I mean, especially obviously Shaq, who. Uh, I mentioned to you, I'm still close friends with. He's a he's a great guy, and I've been in you know many of his commercials, you know. And it was interesting because a lot of the times I would spend time with guys in the preseasons when I was in Orlando with Tracy McGrady and mm-hmm. um, you know Shaq in, in L.A. And I knew Shaq before. Um, whenever there's a commercial and you know who it is, you know it's a matter of just reaching out to to him or his people, and then you get pulled into it. So I was in Shaq's icy hot commercials, you know, the oh, yeah. back in the day. Dun- he was just dunking all over me, you know, for wow. I've been commercial ran for like four years. <clears throat> yeah, I think it's still, I mean, I still see him in icy hot stuff. Yeah, he, he's a part owner or has some, some significant options in that because he's been, he's been advertising their products, Gold Bond and Icy Hot, which are both of their products that company has. But yeah, the Icy Hot back patch commercial, mm-hmm. we shot that and that thing ran for four years. It ran for two years when he was a Laker. And then when he went to Miami, we all thought the, the gravy train was drying up. And yeah. they ended up uh, picking it back up and they CGI'd our uniforms to be red and black. And he still tries to tell me that he made, made sure I remained in the cut and I just kind of go with it. But I don't believe he's really in, into the edit room with those, uh, with those folks at the agency making cuts. I mean, I think it just yeah, worked it and I managed to, to stay in that one scene when they edited it for Miami because all the rest of the guys got edited out and I uh-huh. stuck for a couple more years. And, you know, I paid that's the biggest spot I've ever done. It was huge because it ran so much so often and for four years, which was great. 
So what was the uh, story that you got to attend his uh, statue unveiling? Yeah, that's a, that's a funny one. He, again, such a great guy, you know, from everything he's done for all of his teammates. I'm sure you've heard some stories, but, you know, he's such a giving guy and mm-hmm. buying guys Rolexes after they won the championship and went to Gary's in Beverly Hills, I guess, and, and went and bought, you know, 20 Rolexes and came into the locker room and dropped some in the middle of the uh, locker room with a in a glad bag and just told everyone to grab one. I don't know if you heard that story, but no, I uh, did not. yeah, that was a year before, right after they had won the championship, he, he went and got everybody Rolexes. But, um, uh, I, uh, I had, I saw him when he was in town for, a, I think a broadcast last winter. And, uh, we caught up a bit and he told me, you know, about this, the statue and he said, I better be there. Of course. So I, I said, absolutely. And so I got my invite and I went down there. And they had this big section where they had all his former like teammate teammates, you know, guys that actually logged minutes with him in regular season and won yeah. championships with him in regular yeah. season. And so they're all sitting there. I mean, everybody, they had the whole, you know, I, I sent you that, that picture. I had seen that, that picture before. And um, I remember looking at it and being like, I can name all these guys except that tall guy right there. Yeah, no, right? It was it's you. so good. It's so yeah. good. It's like, you talk about who doesn't belong in theory there. And um, so at the end of it all and all the you know speeches and Phil Jackson and Kobe Bryant, someone got on the, the microphone when everyone was getting up to go to the reception and said, if we could have all of the former teammates, please come up on stage. We're going to be having, uh, doing some photos, uh, getting everybody in, the, in a picture. So I was sitting not with that group. My little seat was off with, you know, the rest of his family and friends and just you know, big supporters of the program. So I kind of got up and, and started making my way around uh, behind the big stage to head up to the reception, which was there at Staples Center. And I hear he calls me Corneasy because that was the thing you did at the, the, the easy at the end of everyone's name back yeah. in the early 2000s. And he never really <laughs> shook that. And so I, I hear, I kind of I heard it, but I, it was like so far away because I was probably, you know, 50 feet away. I heard Corneasy. And, and I looked back over, he's like, Corneasy. And I look at him and he gives me the little finger. He's like, get up here. I'm like, and I kind of wave him off and he starts pointing out to the ground and he's standing on stage. He's like, get up here. Yeah. So, so there I am like rolling up. It's crowded on the stage with all these guys. I'm like, man, I'm like, come on, man. I'm like training camp. He's like, you were there. You were there. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, a really good impression. Yeah. So there I am on stage and they're taking these pictures. I got Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to my left. <laughs> Like Kobe, I mean, I'm like, what? I'm like some of the greatest players in the history of the of, of the NBA, let alone the Lakers, right? Because yeah, so and it was so great because I had a bunch of people send me that picture from his Instagram, which was hilarious. And I recently uh, am on Instagram now at the uh, insistence of my lovely fiance, and uh-huh. uh, did not have it before, so I you know didn't really even know how that all worked. But I get all these links to these Instagram things, and there I am with a select group of guys. And then I see a picture, I think it was LA Times website or something of the full picture. And I just thought it was a kick that somehow I made it into Shaq's post on his Instagram, but Kobe and Kareem did not. Like, yeah. <laughs> like what? Like, it was just a classic moment. But again, it just goes to show Shaq, just such a giving, caring guy to insist that, you know, I get up there too. Because you know, regardless, you're part of the process, whether it's training camp or a 10 day or whatever, whatever capacity you're with the team, you are a part of the process. And it all leads to the outcome at the end of the day of how the team does. And, and I really valued that. And uh, 
just see uh, all those great Lakers and a lot of those guys are my good friends. You know, I keep up with Mitch Richmond and see Rick Fox around a lot and uh, Robert Ory and uh, oh man, yeah, all those guys. You know, they're all still around and they're you know you'll see them in little bars or grabbing a bite with their girls and you know um, John Sally. You know, I just caught up with him the other day. Uh, he declined uh, my podcast invite. Did he? I feel like John can't get enough of anything. I mean, he'll 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 be crying later when when you hit the mainstream with this. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, no, that'd be great. And um, I'm hoping that happens like with this episode, and then like with Paul the other day, because uh, he's got so many you know, other things going, like with his new book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul yeah. certainly Paul certainly capitalized uh, on his passion with writing, and I'm really happy for him. He and I have been very close. Um, since our days, you know, we met there in training camp as well and uh, really happy for him hitting his stride as a writer. And uh, he's been very, very accomplished. Not many guys have been able to do that as a, as a writer, you know, from a basketball player. So I'm really proud of him. Um, but this last question. So I'm on a webpage right now that has 19 names for the 2001 uh, Lakers training camp. How many of those names can you name? Ooh. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> wow. You, you, you got me off guard with that. I probably should have been prepared. So let's <laughs> see. We got Joe Crispin. Uh-huh. Ooh, Lindsey Hunter. Yep. Yep. Uh, Rick Fox. Mm-hmm. Paul uh, forgot Rick Fox. Oh, wow. Okay. Not a forgettable <laughs> guy. Paul Shirley. Yep. Um, Shaq. Kobe. Um, Derek Fisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, Slava Medvedenko. Yep, he responded once and never responded to a follow-up. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, I could probably help get get him. Uh, um, Slava, Jelani McCoy, Samaki Walker, uh, Brian Shaw. Yep. Yes, he's still hanging in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Brian Shaw. Let's see. Uh, how many do I got right now? You got a count going? You got eleven. Oh, so far away. Yeah. Is that including myself? You know, uh, you're not on this list. Oh, awesome. From this website. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that's what happened when, uh, Paul mentioned, when Paul mentioned your name. I was like, oh, he's not on here, but I'll take your word for it. And so, well, interesting. I didn't make that list. Wow. All right. Um, so, all right, me, obviously. Um, yeah. Yeah, you, well, you hadn't said you hadn't said Penberthy yet. I just oh, heard Penberthy. You. Okay, Penberthy. Yep. Uh, Devin George. Yep. Okay. Uh, Mitch Richmond. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. No. So that's. Uh, let me see. I think we're up to one fourteen. Fourteen. How many did Paul get? I'd have to go back and check. He missed a number of them, though. Oh gosh, I gotta beat Paul. Um, <laughs> let me think here. Uh, I, I, did I get Jelani McCoy in there already? Yeah, I got Jelani. You did, yeah. Okay. Um, gosh, I'm burning up your uh, your podcast right now. Uh, oh, I said Biggs. I'm going to go through the guards. I'm glad I got Lindsey Hunter. He was a tough one. Um, yeah, Paul forgot him. I remember that. Yeah, Lindsey. Uh, oh, um, no, he wasn't there. Oh, <laughs> Mad Dog. Yeah, Paul forgot him. Yeah, how, how can you forget Mad Dog? Well, I just almost forgot him. Yeah, uh, Mad Dog. Uh, I got some swings. I'm forgetting here. Got some a little backup backup point guard was Lindsey Twos, Kobe. Oh uh, no, not him. Gosh, I think I'm tapped out. Yeah. Um, so I don't think any of these other guys 
played on the regular season roster, but yeah, Dennis Scott. Oh, D. Scott. Oh, yeah. He was. He didn't make it very long. He was kind of. Uh, yeah. He, he was only there uh, for a few days. I'll give you a hint on this next one. He won a few rings with the Bulls during Jordan's heyday. Oh, Dickie Simpkins. Dickie Simpkins. Yep. Scott Giant. That's right. Um, Such a quiet guy. Not easy to <laughs> there is one more, and uh, Paul didn't remember him either. But yeah, I'll give you this three. Um. Yeah. Oh, that's that's much better than I thought. Yeah. <laughs> the last uh, well, one? I guess uh, it'll be four with this last one. Okay. All right. Um. Paul said, "I'll give you this hint that they shared a locker at training camp." I would have known. I was I was too busy cleaning up Kobe's mess that he would make next to me. So okay. I didn't know what was going on. Somehow I got had to clean up, you know, the Gatorade bottles that he deliberately left for me to clean up. Um, right. who, uh, who was, yeah, it does. Who was the uh, co-locker mate? With Isaac Paul? Fontaine. Oh, from Washington State. Yeah, from Washington State. Yeah, Fontaine. We had a lot of battles in the D League. He played for the Mobile <laughs> Revelers. Yep. Oh God, he was. Very solid player. Never really had the motor he needed for the NBA, but a very crafty, strong player. That's right. Ike, okay, so I missed Ike, Dickey, who else? Uh, Dennis Scott and Mark Madsen. No, I got Mark Madsen. Oh, no, you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Okay, so yeah, just Dennis Scott, Dickie Simpkins, and Ike Fontaine. Uh, listen, I'm pretty proud of that, actually. No, I would um, be too. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, this guy, I can't believe I forgot them. I can't. That's yeah, surprising, but... I mean, so many teammates, man. Like I said, 30 teams. I mean, I've had probably over 400 yeah. teammates. So I guess. No, that's really good. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thank you so much, Peter. This was a lot of fun uh, getting to hear about your Lakers stop and uh, some of your other career as well. So uh, I really appreciate it. I'll send you the link once everything's posted. And um, awesome. Great what you're doing, man. And uh, I have a few of my buddies uh, post, uh, post the link on their Twitters. You know, I have a couple of my close friends. Chris Humphreys has a big Twitter following followership. We were teammates together in Utah his rookie year. So he and I uh, became brothers uh, from the onset of our training camp time there in uh, Salt Lake City. And, and we still are very close. So, but he, uh, yeah, he has like a million Twitter followers and he has yeah. sports guys. So I'll, I'll have him see if he can throw something up and get some, some uh, traction for your podcast. Oh, wow. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure, man. It's, it's been cool to be a part of it. It's always cool to kind of bring up these uh these old stops and kind of remember a lot of the stories so i'm glad we got to to talk about that yeah no thank yeah me too it's a lot of fun thanks again um awesome man great talking to you and uh go lakers yeah go lakers thanks again